You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. God of all promise, thank you that you hear our prayer and answer our cry. With great joy, we praise you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to us as one of us, the Lord who is with us. Amen. On the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me a partridge in a pear tree. What is even a partridge? Who really knows or who really cares? I've never really understood the 12 days of Christmas. The most it has ever meant to me was when I was in primary school. I have one of my better childhood memories of a large sort of a 3 size cardboard calendar with a chocolate behind each of those 12 days. And at primary school, we'd open each of those 12 days and eat the chocolate that was inside. But really, what's so good about the 12 days of Christmas? For us Christians, we actually celebrate the four weeks of Advent. You see, Advent is those four Sundays between now and Christmas, where all of us prepare to celebrate the birth of King Jesus. This is like the run-up to the, to the, this is like the run-up season to the turning point of human history. And so over these four weeks, we'll, we're going to be journeying through the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. Here, we'll walk the Advent road. Week by week, we, we will rediscover the true Christmas story. Now I want to stop right here for a moment, right? I want to let you know right from the outset that this is not a fictional myth. This is not a legendary tale. What we find here in Luke 1 and 2 is not some Christianized fantasy equivalent of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, or my all-time Christmas favorite, Die Hard. No, what we're reading here is the true Christmas history. I mean, just look at Luke 1, verses 1 to 2. This is what he writes. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the Word handed them down to us. You see, Luke, who wrote this gospel, he's a medical doctor, and he's received the true Christmas history from first-hand eyewitnesses to the fact. You see, they were there, and they saw everything that happened with their own two eyes. And now, in verse 3, Luke has carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. You see what's going on here? Luke Luke has compiled all the eyewitness testimonies and put it together in a two-part volume. Volume number one, the Gospel of Luke. And volume number two, the Acts of the Apostles. And just notice how much Luke wants you and me to appreciate the historic reliability of his Gospel. Verse three literally says, I have taken note from the beginning of everything carefully and in order. You see, this is the authorized Christmas history, written by an educated, meticulous medical doctor with a keen eye for detail. I want you to imagine you're holding that two-part volume in your hands, 
And as you open the first page, on the inside cover of this Christmas history is written a dedication to my dear friend, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. See, Dr. Luke, can I call him Dr. Luke? We'll call him Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke is writing this Christmas history so that you and I will be certain about absolutely everything to do with Jesus. That we will have certainty about Jesus' birth, Jesus' life, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. Dr. Luke wants us to be certain beyond a shadow of doubt that we are not reading a Christianized version of the Polar Express. No, this is actually true. And over the next four weeks, we're reading the authorized Christmas history, the story of how God became man. And today, we're going to turn to chapter one of this two-part volume. And in this chapter, we're going to witness the first two Christmas miracles. Are you ready? Let's go. The first Christmas miracle. God is coming to us. God is coming to us. Once upon a time, there was a reindeer named Rudolph. The only reindeer in the world that had a big red nose. Now, let's face it, right? The, the moment you hear those words, once upon a time, you know that you're dealing with a fictional story, right? But look at how Dr. Luke opens his history in verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Do you see? This story is not fictionally set once upon a time in the North Pole. No, it's historically set in modern-day Israel, between 37 and 4 BC. Now, am I surprised you to realize that the Christmas story opens, of all people, with a lonely, elderly couple. A lonely, elderly couple. The man is a priest named Zechariah. And his wife is named Elizabeth. And from what we can tell, there's actually nothing really special about this relatively ordinary couple. Verse 5 literally says there was some priest named Zechariah. They were, well, let's face it, pretty ordinary. But verse 6 tells us that they were also very good. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. You see, on the naughty to nice scale, th this couple was as good as you could get. They were faithful, upright, and blameless. If anyone deserved a good Christmas present, it was them, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But their goodness merely highlights the pain of their loss. Because look at verse 7. As good as they were, as deserving as they might have been, they had no children. Because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were well along in years. I don't know what you guys have planned for Christmas, but generally speaking, Christmas is family time, isn't it? It's that season of the year where, whether you're a Christian or not, our families come together, old and young, grandparents, parents and children, 
And if your family has ever celebrated Christmas with a newborn child, whether that's your own or your nephew or your niece, you will know the joy that few other occasions can bring. But not for this elderly couple. I mean, Dr. Luke, he's blunt in his diagnosis here. He says, literally, Elizabeth is sterile or sterile. Or to use a rather old-fashioned word, she was barren. And not only that, both she and Zechariah were old. They were well beyond the years of childbirth. For a lot of you here, it's hard to imagine, but I want you to just imagine their heartbreak. Imagine their loneliness. They say that Christmas is actually one of the loneliest times of the year. In fact, one in every four Australians report feeling lonely every week. And then, imagine on top of that, the pain every year at Christmas watching other families with their children get together all the while, while you feel all alone. See, it might surprise you to find out, but the Christmas history begins with an elderly and lonely couple, unable to bear children. You see, for women in that time, and for many women today, Infertility is a source of great sadness, and it's also a source of great shame. You know, it's not the sort of news that you would post on Instagram, right? And when we read of Elizabeth's plight, we can't help but think of Hannah from the Old Testament. This woman, Hannah, was also unable to bear children, and for her infertility, her husband's second wife, called her rival even, would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. It's terribly sad. This elderly couple on the first Christmas were not just alone, they were ashamed. You know, in many ways, the plight of Zechariah and Elizabeth here reflects the plight of Israel. Just like Elizabeth was infertile and beyond the age of bearing children, Israel was in captivity. And they were beyond the hope of redemption. You see, for 400 years, they had been overrun. Kingdom after kingdom would come through. And for 400 years, God had remained silent. Imagine that. The God who is the center of your identity has been silent for four centuries whilst you are overrun by kingdom after kingdom. So it's no wonder that Israel for four centuries waits and prays. O come, O come, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Just like this elderly, desperate couple, Israel, God's people, were longing for comfort. They were crying out to God, God, come to us. And then one day, one ordinary day, when Zechariah's division was on duty, Verse 9 tells us, it happened that he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Now I want you to know, there there is no chance going on here. This is not happening by mere happenstance, right? For for this to happen to Zechariah, one out of 18,000 possible priests is a a once-in-a-lifetime possibility, but it suddenly come. This is no coincidence. Because the first Christmas miracle is about to take place. And in verse 11, 
the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Nothing like this has happened in 400 years, right? It's no wonder that Zechariah is literally shook. And listen to the angel in verse 13. I love this, right? He's terrified. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. This makes me feel great. Because your prayer has been heard. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't this moment just so poignant? As we realize that for 400 years, God has not stopped listening. God has not forsaken His promise. God has not forgotten His people. You know, I want you guys to know this. Our prayers to God are not like an empty Christmas wish list to a fat man at David Jones. No, God has heard Zechariah's prayer. And his prayer, presumably for a child. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. I wonder, I wonder, was Zechariah just praying for a son? Sure, I have no doubt that he was. But I wonder if he was praying for anything more. I wonder whether along with the whole assembly of people that we find in verse 10, he was praying for Israel. Remember? John and Elizabeth's plight speaks far more greatly about the plight of Israel. Because look at what Gabriel now says of Zechariah's future son. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, that is the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. I mean, let's face, it, let's face it, Zechariah, he's hit the jackpot here. God is giving him two Christmas presents in one. The deliverance of a child and the deliverance of a nation. This is the greatest gift that Zechariah could ever, ever receive. I'm not yet a parent. Gosh, there's a few steps before that I'm not yet either, right? But I can just imagine, I, I just want to be a proud dad. Well, just imagine Zechariah's pride. He hears, you're going to have a son. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have a boy. And he's going to be the forerunner to God himself. Just imagine how proud he would be. 400 years ago, 400 years before silence, the Lord Yahweh promised through the prophet Malachi that God himself would one day come to his people. God himself would one day come to judge and deliver. And people go, well, how will we know when you're here, God? How will we know when you're finally coming? And in Malachi, he says, I'm going to send you a prophet. I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Does that sound at all familiar? John Zechariah's miracle child, he's going to be that prophet. See, this is the great irony of this Christmas miracle. This child is not even the greatest gift. No, the greatest gift is who the child will introduce. The greatest gift will be God himself. It was Christmas 10 years ago now, in 2009. MasterChef was at its height, 
before three judges got fired. And I was a newfound foodie. And on Christmas Eve, I unwrapped a gift from my uncle, a $200 gift voucher to a restaurant by one of the MasterChef judges. Now, I was really excited. I couldn't believe it. It was, at least at that time, my standards are a little bit higher now, uh, it would give that was just too good to be true. But let's face it, right, that voucher, it was only as valuable as the meal for which it would pay. The meal was the main event. The meal was the greater gift. And as Mark 1 and I later experienced, the main event was as great as the wedding supper of the Lamb. See, John was a gift to Zechariah in one sense that was just too good to be true. But friends, that wasn't even the main gift. It was just pointing to the main event, the greater gift, the greater miracle, the coming of God himself. You see, for Zechariah, this gift was so good that he just didn't quite believe it. In verse 18, look at what he asked, right? How can I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And I love how Gabriel replies, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell this good news. You say that I'm an old man. Who are you? No, the question is, who am I? Again, I'm not just that fat dude at David Jones. I speak for God himself. This is a promise that you can bank on. This is a gift of which you can be certain. This is a miracle which you can believe. But Zechariah didn't. He was dumbstruck in disbelief, and so, ironically, he was struck dumb, both as punishment and then even more ironically, as the very sign that he sought. Was in verse 22, the people, they see him and they realize he can't speak, and then they realize, my gosh, could it be? After 400 years, is God up to something? The first Christmas miracle, God is coming to us. But I want you to know this miracle is nothing compared with the far greater miracle to come. But it's not just that God is coming to us. It's that God is coming as one of us. Six months pass since that first miracle. And again, Dr. Luke wants us to realize that this is no fairy tale. He he sets up a deliberate contrast, right, with that previous miracle. Well, once again, Gabriel, the, the angel, he visits a woman. He promises a miraculous birth. But I want you to notice what we find here in this scene is not an elderly married couple, but a young engaged couple like some of you here. But thank God, unlike some of you here, and thank God for that, Mary would have been no older than 15. And just like there's nothing inherently special about Zechariah and Elizabeth, there's actually nothing really that special about Mary. Some of you back in the 90s might remember that movie, There's Something About Mary. I've never seen it. Apparently it's terrible. But here in Luke's Gospel, there's really nothing special about Mary. I mean, the angel appears to her in verse 28, right? Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But I want you to realize God doesn't come to Mary because she's favored. Mary is favored because God has come to her. She is favored because God is about to perform the greatest Christmas miracle through her. I don't know what it was like for you growing up in your family celebrating Christmas. 
But sometimes in my household, it felt like Christmas presents to my brother and I were doled out on the basis of what we deserved. It was a pretty bad year for us. Here, $5 fuel voucher, go. It was an, if we were average that year, maybe $10. And my gosh, if we were especially that good, that year of sinless perfection, maybe even 15 But not so with God and Mary. You see, Mary's the recipient of undeserving grace. I mean, that's what a true gift, isn't it? That, that's what a true gift is, isn't it? I, I often see a gift like, you know, I know you think you've given me a gift, Hal, but actually what you've given me is a mandatory social obligation because now I have to buy you a gift of commensurate value and I really don't want to do that. You see, a true gift is something that's given that hasn't been earned and that doesn't need to be repaid. I mean, that's the gospel, isn't it? God saves us not because we're favoured, we are favoured because God has saved us in Jesus Christ. Do you notice that little phrase? The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. I mean, that captures this greater Christmas miracle, right? If Christmas is one of the loneliest times of the year, it actually can be made even lonelier when we feel like God isn't there. Have you ever felt that God is distant? That is up there somewhere, like Rian was saying before, you know, removed from the anxiety, the stress and the brokenness of our world? Have you ever thought he could ever possibly understand what I'm feeling? He's never been in my shoes. But friend, I want you to realize that the Lord is with you. The greatest Christmas miracle is that God became man. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And he is here and he is not silent. I want you to imagine for a moment, if you were God Almighty coming to deliver your people from captivity, how would you arrive? You might descend from heaven on your white steed, shadow facts, you know, with great power and might. You might arrive in the glory of angels and armies. But look at how God comes to his people now in verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Just stop sometimes when you read your Bible, yeah? And realize passages that jar. This is a passage that really jars. Because on the one hand, God will be that great Davidic king who will rule over his world with all authority and for all eternity. He will rule as the greater son for whom Zechariah's miracle child will pave the way. You'll see on the screen, on the one hand, John will be great in the sight of the Lord, but Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. But Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. John's going to be the warm-up act, but Jesus will be the main event. Jesus is that great King of Israel who will deliver His people, forgive their sins, and reconcile them with God. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't that just mind-blowing that God will come to His people now in King Jesus? And yet, at the same time, God will come as one of us. A child, a helpless newborn baby of a young, unspectacular, ordinary Jewish virgin. He will be truly human and experience the brokenness of this world and the frailties of our life. We will not be able to look at this almighty God and say, you don't understand my anxiety. You've never felt temptation. You've never been racked with sadness. You've never experienced pain. We won't even be able to look at this God and say, you don't know what it's like to die. Just consider how how radical this Christmas miracle is, that God would come to us as one of us, that He would lay aside His rights to divine power, that the God in the heavens would stoop to meet a sinful people like you and me, that He would save the weak by becoming weak. He would deliver humanity by becoming human. That he would defeat death by being born a man so that he might die a man. Just imagine being Mary, not more than 15 years old. An angel appears to you after 400 years of silence and tells you, this will be your child. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make us new? The child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know? that your baby boy has walked where angels trod. And when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. It's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. But Mary's a smart girl. How can this be since I've not had sexual relations with a man? I mean, it stands to reason, doesn't it? How in the world will I give birth to a child if I'm still a virgin? Good question, Mary, because yours is not just any ordinary child. See, if you thought Elizabeth's pregnancy was a Christmas miracle, just you wait and see, because the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. God Himself will bring about your pregnancy. Now, let's be clear, there's nothing sexual that's going on here. But because Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, because He is born of the Virgin Mary, it means that He will be called, and He can be called, the Son of God. Right? Truly human and truly God. Track with me here, right? If Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, He cannot be truly God. And if he cannot be truly God, he cannot live the perfect life or die a death that's sufficient to save all of us here. But if Jesus was not born of the Virgin Mary, he cannot be truly human. 
And if He cannot be truly human, He cannot live a life or die a death in our place as our representative. You see, in order for God to save, He must come to us. But in order for God to save us, He must come as one of us. I hope you realize how amazing this is. The greatest Christmas miracle is that God became man. And the greatest Christmas gift is His very own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, two Christmas miracles. So two Christmas lessons. Number one, Jesus meets us in our mess. Jesus meets us in our mess. You see, the authorized Christmas history opens with God appearing to, of all people, an elderly couple with no children, no hope, and no legacy. And just as is the case for many women today, Elizabeth's infertility brought sadness and shame. I remember my old church, I was in a Bible study group with someone who was struggling to give birth to children. It was heartbreaking. I remember her saying, that every Christmas she would look at her friends, particularly with newborn children, and she would watch them bear and raise their children, and the experience was, was bittersweet. You know, I know in our church family, there is sadness, not for lack of children, but oftentimes for lack of friendship or lack of marriage. I know that as happy as many of us are for our friends who are in relationships or getting engaged, it can be that same bittersweet experience. And our sadness might not even be over the lack of marriage, but it's actually simply over the lack of friendship. Because we think to ourselves, right, well, when they get married, what happens to me? Will they still talk to me? Will they still care for me? You know, in this Christmas miracle, God meets us in our sadness and shame. He meets us in our mess. He hears our prayers and He answers them. Now, let me be very, very honest, right? God never promises us a husband or a wife, and He never promises us children, period. But just like we saw in the first Christmas miracle, He promises something far greater than that. My gosh, He promises someone far greater than that. He gives us the greatest gift of all, His very own Son, a God and King who knows our pain, our frailty, our weakness, our temptation, our sadness, our sorrow, and even our death. You see, whether we are at the peak of our lives or in the depths of despair, Christmas means that we will never have to walk alone. God is not absent. God is not distant. God is not silent. Emmanuel, the Lord is with us. Don't get your hopes up, but if I were to give you a Christmas present, how would you feel? Maybe your BLT is celebrating uh, a KK or a Secret Santa or Bad Santa. How would you feel when you unwrap that gift, presuming it's a good gift? I'm guessing that you might feel joy, gratitude, delight. Now, if that's the case for the sort of everyday gifts that we get now that will just end up at the bottom of a drawer or at the top of a shelf, How do you think we should feel when God has given us the greatest Christmas present we could ever receive? 
How do you think we should feel when God has given us His very own Son? I mean, surely, right, you would expect Christians to be, of all people, those overflowing with an inexpressible and uncontainable joy. Verse 14, the angel said to Zechariah, there will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at John's birth. But remember, John's birth merely points forward to a far greater birth, the birth of King Jesus. And, and my gosh, if there will be joy and delight at John's birth, just imagine the joy and delight at the birth of King Jesus. This month, Christmas, it reminds us that for all the brokenness of this world and for all the frailty in our lives, we Christians have every reason to rejoice. And I hope that our friends might see in us a joy on our faces and in our lives. That just like Mary, you and I are recipients of undeserving grace. That you and I have received the greatest gift this world could ever possibly know. So we have every reason to sing just as we did earlier, right? Have you ever thought about those lyrics? Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room and heaven and nature sing. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God is offering you the greatest gift of this world. He is offering you His very own Son, who came to deliver you from sin and death. And all you have to do to receive it is trust this God and say thank you. Don't be like Zechariah who didn't believe it. Don't be like me who feels like I need to repay it. No, be like Mary who humbly said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. For when you trust in this King, you will never walk alone. Let me pray. God of all promise, thank you that you hear our prayer and answer our cry. With great joy we praise you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to us as one of us, the Lord who is with us. Amen.